Rick, welcome to the show. So glad you're here. Good to see you again, Chris. Heard you had a nice adventure. We won't talk much about that, but until later. Well, I can only say so much about certain sites that we go to. You know, we want to protect them. And we uh, if uh, people knew that that stuff was there, they would go there and dig it up Destroy and it. loot it. Yeah. And um, that specific site was protected because archaeologists said there was nothing there. Right. Um, which is... Uh, a fun little start to our conversation today. So Rick, I'm thinking, I mentioned this last night, uh, not a lot of preparation for this, but we're going to talk about archaeologists and the paradigm, the dogma that they protect. And um, why don't you just lead us off where you think we should go? Oh my, uh, there, there are many facets to that. And I've researched two or three of them in pretty great depth. And the one thing that I've come across very strong, and I'm not alone in this, although you'll never hear an archaeologist say it, you will hear legal experts, um, surveyors, and a whole bunch of other fields say that it is because of the sovereignty of the United States. If we ever found a found hard proof of a Christian type entity or society existing in North America before Columbus, then all of the land claims that the United States traces back to Columbus would be null and void. So that's one of those things. Uh, as far as the dogma slash doctrine slash ideology, they can never be wrong. It's just it, <laughs> scientific method that they, some of them do try to practice scientific method, but that's an impossibility given the nature of archeology. span Once you extract anything from the ground or wherever you find it, you cannot extract another one just like it from conditions exactly like that. So you can't do scientific method of repeatability. That's not their fault, but it's part of the problem. Well, very good, Rick. Um, and so quite a shocking statement to say, Rick, that the archaeological community is engaging in a massive conspiracy, which they all know about, and you know their assistants know or don't know. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite crazy to say something like that. How would you respond to that? Uh, to say it is a systemic problem, much like other supposed systemic problems here. No, it's not. It, it, it's not that anybody knows they're doing it. The indoctrination is so thorough and so below the pale that they don't even know they're being manipulated. Um, I don't know how to describe the entity that is doing the manipulation, but it's not the archaeologist themselves. Sometimes it's universities, sometimes it's publishers, sometimes it's other entities of all kinds. The archaeologists are, sorry, merely tools. Yeah, and it's it's hard to put what we've spent, you know, you've spent many decades doing, I've spent a little over one decade doing, it's hard to put all of this into very concise, short sentences and simple words, when you say, you know, they're protecting a paradigm that they all know that Columbus, you know, was not the first and, you know, it, it's all it takes time to explain this to people and make it very simple for people. So, um, Let's see. So what is the standard just kind of story, Rick? The standard story is that 
glaciers were up north and they melted 10, 12,000 years ago. And that came down and that kind of settled, you know, these rocks and these boulders. And that's what archaeologists say. But what is our alternative theory to these dolmens, these standing stones that are placed all around the Americas, that the glaciers didn't do it, right? That man moved those? When you have an identical structure, one large rock on top of three or four, usually three smaller rocks, holding it up in a plane, and that has stood there presumably since around the end of the last ice age. But if it were just one, maybe, but it's not just one. It's hundreds, maybe thousands of such structures. And interestingly enough, almost always those structures are capable of being seen from a travel route, whether it's by sea, by Great Lakes, by river, by land, you can see that structure, usually on a high point. My contention is that it is serving the same function as the three globes that you see hanging outside a pawn shop. Hey, we trade here. We buy, sell, and trade right here. Come on, bring it in. If you, if you ever watch Pawn Stars, you'll find one of those right outside their door. Um, and what is, what is, have you written about a connection with the Co Korean Peninsula, possibly tens of thousands of, uh, is it standing stones or dolmens or stone structures? It's, it's dolmens. Uh, and to say I've written about it, I've written like two sentences about it. So in, in what has been published, the research, however, is pretty thorough. And my, my research has been both personal anecdote from Koreans and from internet searches. But somewhere in the vicinity of 15,000 such dolmens exist on the Korean Peninsula by itself. So this was not formed by glaciation or deglaciation, for that matter. It was formed by people. And so I just recently heard a story of, uh, you know, an archaeologist that was very skeptical about these, you know, always calling them glacial erratics and um, became a little more open to them and actually looked at a report that was created showing some core samples. And, uh, you know, this archaeologist did make some revised statements uh, based on, you know, his, his previous understanding. So that is encouraging. That is hopeful. I'm not saying that it's all younger people that are making these revisions to their, you know, to their dogmas, but it does give us hope that we can make changes to, uh, you know, to this operation, so. Well, if people are, if not just archeologists, but also anthropologists and historians are open to scientific method, which historians are not, uh, then yeah, it will change. The historians will only go with what has been written about what was written. They won't, seldom will they even go back to the primary source themselves. Well, do you think, Rick, that archeologists would come onto this show, uh, state archeologists regional, because, you know, I've heard stories of a, an archaeologist that was at a party with a, uh, you know, a con not, not a conspiracy person, but we're all labeled conspiracy people, but was at a party and literally turned his back, walked out the door because he doesn't want to talk to that person. He doesn't want to listen to what that person has to say, even though that person's a geologist and providing hard scientific method. These people do not want to hear it because once they've heard something, they cannot unlearn it. So do yeah. you think we can get people on this show of that caliber or do you think they will avoid us? Um, if we can 
if we can um, persuade, that's the best word I can use, persuade some retirees initially to come in and talk to us about some of the things that we research. And maybe because they don't have an agenda anymore. They don't have to worry about tenure or they don't have to worry about having a retirement. Well, I, I, I have been told, as we've heard these stories before, that um, the state archaeologist controls all of his or her employees below him or her. That's that is at correct. The, that's at the historical society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They all work for the boss. That this problem is systemic in all, a lot of disciplines, a lot of industries. Uh, my psychologist mentioned it's the same thing with PhDs at Princeton and Stanford. They will not let you... Do, pursue topics for your PhD if they don't approve it. That's just, this is multidisciplinary. So I've been told that state archeologists have specifically said to many people, you will not do that radio show. You will not do that TV interview. It's just easier if you don't. Uh, a specific story uh, was there will be no state talks. Guy said, there will be no state talks in any state buildings uh, about this topic, about this subject matter. And another one over there, which I'm trying to avoid saying states and names is if you have that speaker at your conference, you will be fired. And that is a state archeologist telling the head of a local historical society. So you think we can get them on here, Rick? Persuading? The retirees that don't have to answer that state archaeologist, yeah, maybe. Do you, do you think that we will become enemies or that they oh, will Oh, it's like too late for that. <laughs> I, I, at least in my case, I, I, I am all but barred from a couple of the, I guess you'd have to say more prominent archaeological laboratories. Rick, how could they do that though? You're an amateur. Most of the work, my understanding, most of the good work is being done by amateurs across this country on their home sites because they can't even get archaeologists to come to their work, to come to their sites, which is just so sad. These people just want to share it with the world and can't get anybody there. So, um, you know, there are a few exceptions, but it, it's not going to be stuff that we look at. It's going to be uh, materials that already exist in the literature, just in a new place. So if you, if you want to change that paradigm, you have to change the literature. And there are, there are a couple of, I guess you'd call them roundabout avenues of doing that, and that is getting papers accepted in certain journals that don't answer to a specific state archeologist. And, and amazing this is going on in the scientific age, which, yep. you know, these people are not trained in the scientific method. Uh, calculus, physics, you know, like Newton, that stuff is not being, you know, taught to them. Uh, and so when they're faced with scientific data, uh, they overlook that to their preference. And so they're teaching people by trickery that there's nothing out there that there was nothing before Columbus, nothing before the Norse, um, that it's all made by the glacier. So, um, you know, tell me any stories, Rick, about mounds all the way back that have been looted by archeologists. 
Uh, that started before there were archaeologists. Um, I don't know how to give you so many examples. Squire and Davis, they were paid for every, anything that they brought out of a mound. Davis tried to keep all his as a private collection. Squire sold pretty much everything he found. Squire became a successful bureaucrat and emissary from the United States and Nicaragua, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But after them, and we're talking, what, 1830s in this case, up to 1841 or two, um, after them, there were all kinds of quote-unquote archaeologists who went around trying to learn things from whatever came out of a mound. And in rare cases, were they keeping the objects themselves? They were selling them to the Museum of Man, the Hay Museum, Putnam, et cetera, et cetera, most, almost all on the East Coast because that's where the money was and that's where they wanted the goods. Um, there was a market for it. There's still a market for it, but now it's a black market. If it's burial goods, it's illegal to trade in it or to even possess it for the most part. Um, and so to learn, to learn that, you know, these archaeologists, if they find a site, you know, that, that can somehow unearth something that's one year, five years salary, it's a very understandable human condition to want to take that, not tell anybody and sell it. I mean, I, I'm not sympathizing or empathizing. I'm saying it's a human condition that we need to expose and somehow, you know, get better. Um, what they've done over at that island, you know, on the East Coast is, is basically the worst kind of archaeology that they could possibly do. They're not doing archaeology. They're doing treasure hunting. There's a major difference. You don't go with a backhoe to an archaeological site. These rocks were pointed certain places. There was smelting going on nearby. This was an ancient harbor. You don't just create a big hole and uh, destroy it forever. So... Mm. Um, good to expose that. So another thing they do, Rick, is trying to understand what they teach in the schools is they kill the sense of wonder to that student. And, you know, they, they kill true history. Um, and so I hate to call them eggheads or intellectuals, but they cannot entertain new ideas. So, um, I guess, what, what do you think we should jump around to Rick talking about codices and uh you know archaeologists saying that there's nothing on them that they're fake and then buying them all on the cheap and then selling them i mean what do you want to talk about oh well we could yeah we could start with that but you know i have one particular artifact in mind that kind of describes or encapsulates the entire problem that artifact was discovered in 1838 um, and it's small. It's a very portable artifact. It's like an inch and a half in diameter. Uh, it had writing on it. It was translated by two or three different people as being in two or three different languages, depending on which person you're talking to. Uh, now, all that exists of it is a couple of pretty good replicas and many photographs of the replicas because the original tablet kind of went missing from a museum. Um, I'm talking about the Grave Creek tablet, which had both writing of a type and a small map. I feel it's a map. It's an image of some kind on it. And it was buried with the individual in the upper tomb of the, the Great Mount or Grave Creek Mound, we call it. Um, it was written about by 
everybody from Schoolcraft, who was pre-archaeologist. He was a scholar. He was a generalist. He learned 38 different native languages and dialects. He could translate anything among Native Americans, let alone to English. But he took copious notes of everything he saw in every place he went. He drew maps as he went along. He kept records for 50 years of his activity in the field, um, most of which is now lost, but some of the better ones are still available. Go on, there are others after him. Uh, Alan King Moorhead, as an example. There's a whole story about him, but he abandoned the family business, which was making gunpowder, incidentally, and he wanted to go into a peaceful pursuit that he enjoyed, and that turned out to be digging up somebody else's graves. But he did it very systematically. Uh, whereas Squire and Davis could go through in a day and empty a mound, Moorhead went through in three weeks and actually sifted through all the dirt to get the small pieces. And it's, it's still, go ahead, Rick, sorry. And he still sold all the pieces. He wasn't after just the knowledge. He was also after making a living. So. And, and so it started with Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, obviously way before that, but dug into about a thousand mounds, tried to do a systematic study, type, tried to create this new archaeology, you know, type concept. Um, and But there were theories at that time of Welsh, of, you know, Celtic, of all different theories, anything except that Native Americans could have done this. Because... Right because they were savages, they, they just, everybody, and, the, and it's not the people's fault, they believed that the Indians were savage, that they couldn't have done these mounds. And so Caleb Atwater, uh, Rafinski, you know, these guys started to put two and two together that maybe these Indians actually did this thing. Um, so then after that, um, let's see, Squire and Davis. So you have the Kensington runestone, which was found by a Swedish farmer. He was basically battered, uh, you know, that he had faked it, everything else, until a geologist, uh, Newton Winchell, did hard science and said, this is, you know, this is what 500 it is. 500 years old, uh, six, five, 600 years old. <laughs> and it, it speaks of this, you know, voyage and men read with death and, and, you know, really fits a lot of different things. Uh, 1362, it's dated. Mm -hmm. um, but he, you know, two kids killed themselves, uh, you know, which may or may not be a connection. The point is, is that these people that find these stones are treated so poorly. And the Bat Creek Stone, the Smithsonian's own guy that found this Hebrew stone, in these Cherokee burials said he, the Smithsonian threw his own guy under the bus, said he's a drunk, he's a womanizer, you know, and his career went down in flames too. So it is shocking that they engage in this kind of big conspiracy, Rick. It's hard to believe. Well, it's hard to believe that it has lasted this long as well. You mentioned because there was Hebrew writing on the Bat Creek stone, which there is, um, once you turn it right side up. Um, Smithsonian displayed it upside down for what a century turn it over oh no we can't have that here the way it went but the u.s army has still in their possession a tiny one inch square tablet that has cuneiform writing on it 
and it is basically a receipt for one lamb, but it was captured with the Nez Perce chief, Chief Joseph. And he said that his ancestors had handed it down for many generations, but nobody knew how to read it. <laughs> so ancient Sumerian writing amongst the Native Americans of the you know, central, North Central Plains. You know, Rick, they, it is this revisionist alternative history that we have explored that obsesses us because we know that there's something to it. And it grabs us and it never lets us go until the day we die because it's like, why are we being lied to? You know, some stories that come to mind that I just learned. So Pythagoras, you know, wrote about what he did and musical scales on the piano. He was killed by priests because I swear I will keep this secret my whole life. Uh, Einstein, all his ideas, Shaman Law, his British passport was pulled when he wrote Hindu America. Um, Darwin was only three weeks ahead of Wallace. You know, the point is, is that things happen the way they do. And, you know, we're turned on to different sites that we may have never heard about. So Alice Kehoe is a very hero archeologist to us. Dr. James Shears met this woman and said, have you ever, she's a, an archeologist, you know, PhD, I believe. Have you ever heard of the Kensington runestone? Have you ever heard of the Michigan tablets? The thousands of stones uncovered up north. She said, no, never heard of those. She starts looking into these things, then writes a few books about them. So, um, you know, I will tell you one more thing, Rick. The arrogance of these archaeologists to say that there was for sure no copper extracted out of Lake Superior, yet I've never been there. I mean, yeah, it's the arrogance of these people. Um, so, you know, another one is a guy found a, a stone circle and a mastodon, a PhD, uh, an archaeologist, I believe, uh, for sure, an archaeologist found a mastodon painted on a rock. The boat goes down there, they do all the tests, and the university does the test, and the archaeologist says it's fake. There's their water was never at that level, it's, it's fake. And that guy was fired from his job. He moved to England. A new dean then came in. He then was rehired back here. These stories are by the hundreds, Rick. So I'm sorry for my venting. I guess this is... This is <laughs> they good. are by the hundreds. Uh, and not, not very far from that incident, there was a mound opened. Uh, I think this would have been in 1967. I'm not certain of the date. And there were several artifacts, objects found, as well as some skeletal remains of a small horse. So they just closed it back up because, you know, there couldn't be a, it had to be an intrusive burial in a mound if it was a horse, because there were no horses. And yet, just on top of that horse skeleton was a hammer, uh, I'm sorry, an axe head, um, stone axe head, but it had a wooden handle and some of the remnants, sorry, got it wrong. It was a copper axe head, and the copper had helped preserve part of the handle and the cordage holding it onto the handle. And when that handle was carbon dated, it was 940 something as a center date. Remember, it was on top of the horse. So, but no, we don't want to talk about that. When it, when it doesn't fit 
what they want to talk about. They discard it and they say that should not have been there. That's an intrusive that should not have been there. It, it's something is mistaken with it. Uh, right. it's, it's quite outrageous. So if they can't, if they can't fix it that way, it, then it's a hoax. Uh, if they can't fix it that way, then it's a mistake. And if they can't fix it at all, then it's a problematic artifact. And, and when they try to, you know, rebuttal, which usually they won't rebuttal us, but they will be forced to on this stuff. I mean, I have people writing papers or friends that they will have to rebuttal. And this will all be known to everybody, hopefully God willing, in the coming decades and centuries. Um, yep. But the, the longest stuff that lasts is the stuff that's on stone. You know, all our papers, all our DVDs, my books, my artifacts, the only stuff that's going to last is the stuff on stone. And they knew that back then. And they thought these stones had spirits and they painted stuff on there for their ancestors. I was at a site that has ancient paint, better paint than we even make today. Yep. And, you know, the archaeologist said, no, that's just natural. There, there's nothing there. Um, these are huge eight foot stones that are in the ground. So our friend down in the south showed kind of an ancient slag site pertaining to U.S. steel, iron workers, similar to stuff in Pennsylvania, he noticed. What did the archaeologist say? State archaeologist. He asked no questions. He never engaged, agreed, disagreed as this guy was presenting this comparison of two sites. He just said at the end, he said, I'm processing this. I mean, well, at least he said something, right, Rick? Yeah, no, that's um, better than normal. But, um, you know, these I, sites I, I had I had some contact with uh, an archaeologist. He had been state archaeologist in one state and retired from that job and became state archaeologist in another state. And he has since retired from that post, but he's still active in the circles. And I was talking to him. I had contacted him about my line of sight research. And he was open enough. He said, put me together a proposal and we can test it from two sites over which he has access, if not control. And uh, so I did that. And then I never heard another word from him. <laughs> I don't have the right degree, you see. It's yeah. And so Fred Reedholm, mayor of Marquette, our hero, one of them who started Ancient Artifact Preservation Society, the best group for about 50 to 100 like-minded, mostly gray-haired, uh, they mostly. meet in the fall. Um, but he started that group and wrote two fabulous books that will be known and will change all the history books. But he was attacked for being just a high school history teacher. Uh -huh. And this guy did the work. He traveled all around the world looking at dolmens. He had a Eskimos show him sites, you know, around the Huron Mountain Club and yep. Dolmens. And, but he's just a high school history teacher, which is just what I am. I'm just, oh, I'm just an amateur. Okay, yep. well, all right. at least I don't say I for sure know everything and I'm not open to anything new. At least I don't say that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, let's see here. So these line of sight mounds that you talk about, Rick, these are all over the U.S. You have written an incredible book about it called Graves of the Golden Bear. Um, just tell us 
what was going on at these high points of these hills, mounds, mountains? What was going on in ancient times? Communications. The purpose of the communications covered pretty much everything that it does today. And incidentally, every place that you found a line of sight communications hub, then it was, as you said, on a high point of terrain or artificial high point. Some more towers, some were mounds. But each and every one of those places is also an ideal place for a cell tower because it is also a line of sight communication system. So the the idea that there were these sites all over the map is true and that they, they could select from natural terrain spots for most of it. But there were, might be a lag in this spot. So they'd either build a 30, 35 foot tower or they'd build a mound or in the case in uh, Tower Hill, Illinois, they did both. They found a hill, built a mound on top of it, and then built a tower on top of it, and it was still extant in the 1830s, hence the name of the town. Um, other places, for instance, Cahokia, they, they had a very high point on top of Monk's Mound, and it could see not only the ridge to the east, the, the river terrace to the east, it could see over it just a little bit. And as a result, if you follow all the lines to all the mounds and other high places, you can stretch a line, a very straight line, incidentally, from Cahokia through Illinois into Indiana, across Indiana, into Ohio, across Ohio, into West Virginia, into Pennsylvania, all the way out to the East Coast. In fact, the Newport Tower is part of that. And, and you're sending messages within a matter of minutes across... With, uh, a full day to get from, say, Cahokia to the East Coast and back would take about a full day and would depend on the length of the message. And you're using mica, which is still used today uh, by for rangers? The, for, for the daytime, yes. Well, hand mirror. So it functioned as a naturally formed hand mirror. But at night, they had some kind of a louvered device, I'm convinced, that would regulate artificial light. Not that they use candles or oil lamps, but oh yes, they did. And and that was reflective uh, in Arkansas. They found three foot sheets of mica, and that they used that code for their mirror. Uh, and that the mica rangers, you know, rangers still use that. So some of these lines, Rick, have you heard of the Thunderbird lines? Yes. The Signal Hills up to the Copper Mines, Isle Royal, a, a precursor to the Morris Code. What do you have yes. to say about that? It, it did not use an alphabet as we know an alphabet, but their symbology and their system probably relayed a sub syllabic written language. So even though it was flashes of light, it represented a written language that we will probably never know how to use, but the Cherokee had their own version. So, um, and, and that's probably true also of the Maya, the Olmec, Toltec, all those cultures down there, they had a very similar system of signaling. The Maya cities of the Yucatan are laid out in grids, not just a city as a grid, but the cities are located at points of grids. And normally they're at about 10 miles distance, which is pretty much the outside distance for this line of sight in that kind of atmospheric conditions. And, and Rick, every lighthouse in the 1800s had a code. <laughs> they had a code, but somehow the people a few hundred years 
few thousand couldn't have a code. I mean, it's just crazy. So yeah. Um, ignorant savages, so we could take their land. Um, so yeah. Rick, tell me about the Romans coming to America and possibly the ninth legion and that you believe that and that they were also taking over these signal hills, you know, before their predecessors that were there? Yes, and they did have predecessors here uh, who I believe were the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians were only, a, in that case, I believe, were a mercenary force protecting the trade route. The trade families of the old world had had bagged the copper trade, copper and bronze, because you could get both copper and bronze, uh, copper and tin in the Americas in far greater amounts than you could in the old world. So they were coming here for that, but they didn't own their own Navy. So they contracted both Carthage and I believe King Juba's Mauritania to escort their trade ships. And then when and then when the Romans conquered Carthage, it kind of fell apart. So you had individual traders who were still coming and getting smaller batches. And the subject of my book is who were they and why did the Romans finally make it here? And I believe that the one that they followed the most was Joseph of Arimathea. He was the Romans copper merchant. And Joseph of Arimathea. Tim made being Jesus's great uncle, correct, who was the Bill Gates of that time in terms of wealth. Yeah, Joseph and, of Arimathea had more money than Rome did, and got Jesus off the cross because he went to Pontius Pilate, who was obviously a big important person. Joseph of Arimathea to do that. Yeah, and, walked in on walked in on him at dinner time and interrupted his dinner in the gubernatorial palace and said i want that body and i want it now and he got his wish uh and we'll get into some deeper thoughts on that at another time since we're talking about uh the archaeologists now um and so basically there was a tremendous amount of you know garden beds food that was being manufactured and agriculturalized around this roman time um, you, you know, stores were all along the rivers. You'd come in, you'd, you'd get off your boat. These portages, um, breakwater walls made of rocks, they're all over. The water levels were all different, 60 feet higher, 40 feet lower, some type of quick impact about 12,000 years ago that caused one lake to, you know, massively drain out. Point is water fluctuations. We know where the Nipissing is. The Nipissing is the high water mark you then look for sites just above that. Yep. And that's 5,000 BC, 4,000 BC, 3,000 BC. Then as it goes down, the sites that are newer, Roman, Celtic, first century, you know, before time of Christ, are then revealed at these lower levels. So Romans are one group. We obviously know about the Minoans. Tell us about the Minoans, Rick, being the seafaring traders, and when did they uh, hold power of the seas? Hold power. Um, basically, the best I could been able to tell, and there are many different assertions about this. Um, from around 4500 BC, which is before most archaeologists admit that that culture even existed, 
up until about 1200 BC, which is when uh, the eruption wiped them out, they were sea travelers. And they were probably, much like the Carthaginians, more mercenary about it than real trading experts. They knew how to run a shipping organization. They also had their own system of writing. And it had a lot of resemblance to, say, the Mayan represented by glyphs to mean something. But one of the glyphs that they used on the Phaistos disc was an oxide. And that was certainly a symbol for copper oxide ingots. And, and, so and the Phaistos disc has that on there, I think, five different times. So. The Phaistos disc, you have the disc, you have the Alubrian shipwreck uh, off of the coast of Turkey with a yes. bunch of copper ingots. Um, basically, our big evidence is that copper traders were extracting copper up in Lake Superior during the summer months. They plant corn. May 15th is the thinking. And then November 15th, which is the halfway point, it's time to go. Otherwise, yeah, it's you're actually a little late, but yeah. <laughs> You're going to freeze to death. Um, so then you you bring this stuff, the copper down the Mississippi to Poverty Point, Louisiana. You smelt it into ingots. Then you ship it all different places. Uh, Rick, did you know that you used to be able to go directly across Mexico? You didn't even have to portage. You just went right to Asia, just a straight line to Asia. So these water levels that were different uh, are not factored in by most people today. Correct. But as you said, yeah, you, you would take directly from Lake Superior down to the Gulf of Mexico. And my research indicates that there was a period of about a thousand, maybe 1200 years where you could do that without a single portage through Indiana. So not very far from me, but. Uh, Rick, are we supposed to stop this? Then nobody's going to listen to all of our other ones. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. A few more minutes and we'll be done. So. All right. History repeats itself. They are preventing all forms of free speech. Uh, They're not giving platforms to amateurs who write papers and you're, they don't give them platforms. They can't share right. their work. It's mind boggling. You have to have a college degree in archeology span to dictate that a site is real or not. It's outrageous. And, and you can't even get people to your site anyway. So the point is YouTube, they delete videos. They, they, they don't want this stuff out there. And all we're trying to do is get to the truth. So um, that's kind of it for now, Rick. We can go on forever. The Minoans being from India, Mohi Jabdaro is a possible uh, conversation for next one. Uh, the that's Indians impossible. controlling the seas, 200 foot boats, becoming the Minoans. Um, you know, and the, the other thing to stress is that these aren't just little dark-skinned Indians or Minoans or Asians or, or African-Americans. This is a mix of people, a mix of cultures. You traveled all around the world and you mixed and bred with everybody. So this is a real, you know, varied group of That's people. what sailors do. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do that, of course, but, um, you know, it would have, would have been fun to, uh, to be back in those times, that's for sure. When I think of the Phoenicians, I, I used to say they were the UPS of the ancient world. 
and That's of course awesome. and of course being sailors they would also be spreading their dna all over the world so what can Phoenicia do for you? All right. Well, that's a good start, Rick. And this is uh, how many podcasts do you think we could do, buddy? I mean, not even uh, I don't kidding. Know. Uh, well, given my history, at least 100. And uh, they will change the history books and we will have a, a different guest on all the time. Um, when we feel like it, we'll just talk. But we will not stop. We will keep going. And this stuff is, uh, this is just a taste of what's to come. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you, Rick. This is a lot of fun. It is always a lot of fun. Chris, we'll see you again soon, real, real soon, I hope, and have important stuff to talk about. All right. Good job, buddy. This, uh, this segment is sponsored by American Heroes Bar and Grill. When you're in the uh, Bicknell, Indiana area, feel free to, uh, you know, have a cheeseburger, a delicious cheeseburger, medium rare, uh, local cow, uh, yep. very expensive stuff. Grass fed, Rick? Or? Yes, grass fed. And then we have a very special finishing diet for them. That's why they taste so good. And what's the special tonight or tomorrow? Uh, this is Wiener Wednesday. So we have uh, conies and I think there's some Polish sausage in there too, but. I love it. All right. We, every night you have a new special and yes, it's quite inexpensive, I would say. So, um, all right. So we'll talk soon. And thanks again, buddy. Very fun. You too, Chris. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Good job, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>